Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Jan Lennart. Jan is a developer and business person from Berlin, co-creator of Hoodie, vice president of Apache CouchDB, and co-founder and CEO of Neighborhoodie Software. With Jan, we focused on building healthy communities. We talked about how he approaches community organizing, his evangelism of CouchDB, creating Hoodie, and what it means to build sustainable open source. We also talked about drive-by contributions, contributor funnels, and the differences between popular and healthy open source projects. Hey, Jan, how's it going? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. I've known you for, for a really long time uh, and really learned a lot from you. So um, wh- why don't we get into, like, maybe we can start out kind of before uh, I met you <laughs> and maybe talk about some of, like, the, where did you start in open source and how did you, what did you kind of learn there? Um, I think my very first uh, interaction was something that I would call an open source community. It was a small, at that point, large um <clears throat> larger German community that had a website that what was a that would explain how to do websites, which was kind of revolutionary at the time because you barely have a medium that explains how the medium works. That totally blew my mind. So that explained everything how the web works. So I've been a fan of the web ever since, and that has a nice, had a nice community attached and everything. Um, um, but I've quickly learned all the HTML and CSS that was around in like '99, and then uh, PHP came around, and um, <clears throat> I wanted to check that out, and also found a community there, and that's kind of how I got started. I spent kind of nearly 10 years in the PHP community um, from just being like learning and understanding how that all works to eventually becoming a core contributor. How did you two meet? Uh, so we met through Ted Leung. Uh, Ted Leung is sort of like a guy behind the guy for a lot of Apache stuff. Uh, and so I worked on this thing called Chandler Project at the Open Source Applications oh Foundation. Um, and that was uh, <laughs> that was fun. Uh, but Ted Leung was there and he was a mentor. I, I believe he was a mentor to the Apache Project. And so he introduced me and Jan in the early CouchDB days. Nice. I met Jan through a cold email. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I stumbled upon a hoodie somewhere and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most perfect project ever. Because it was like Aww. a whole section that was like talking about all these different experiments they were doing for funding. And it was like so friendly and splashy. And um, and I was just like, oh, this is like the kind of project I wish more projects look like. And very nice to yeah. hear. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you. Because I mean, that conversation, I just sort of like enthusiastically emailed you on about like, oh, can we like, can I understand better um how hoodie gets funded and and all this stuff but i ended up understanding so much more about um open source culture and community based on that conversation whereas i thought we were kind of just going to talk about funding um but just hearing some of jan's experiences and um i remember jan saying when he was talking about couch db that he didn't actually start couch db um but a lot of people associate him with it because he was the one who was talking about all the time um, and so it was cool just to hear from someone who's had experience of like, it doesn't always matter who writes the original code, but also all these other different support functions that help projects grow. So yeah, it was super influential for me. Um, yeah. I, I remember when I was getting into CatchDB, the, the kind of the tone and, and for lack of a better word, the personality of the project was very like yawn and attached to yawn. Um, yeah. and I, I think I remember like a, a blog post about that Damien did just about how, 
you know, popular it's been with basically no marketing unless you count Jan, he said. <laughs> and so I'm kind of curious, like, how did you get involved into CouchDB and how did you kind of like end up taking on that role um, as sort of like an evangelist for it and just like kind of a community organizer? So it was a it was a time nearly 10 years ago when I was adrift. I was doing stuff, but I wasn't kind of I didn't know what I was really doing. So I, I was still in university and I had an RSS reader a million like entries long. So I just read everything I could find on the Internet when that was still possible um, and eventually found Damien's blog and um, learned about CouchDB. But at the time, I did a bunch of experiments with other things as well, looked at like native Mac app development. So I have some friends in that community still, which is kind of nice, but but didn't turn out to be the thing that I really wanted to do. Um, and yeah, eventually learned about CouchDB and the, the thing I was doing professionally at the time was PHP MySQL work, specifically scaling MySQL. And that's kind of, what well, was a fun topic 10 years ago. It's kind of, kind of solved these days, but it was quite cutting edge then. And then when I read about the principles behind CouchDB, I thought, well, I better get behind this because I'll be out of a job real soon if I don't get on board with this. And I was kind of a little bit early. Um, like we, we now have this whole NoSQL uh, or NoSQL movement and CouchDB kind of kickstarted all that. Um, but I kind of, I, I thought I had a kind of fear of missing out really early on. So I, I got involved and um, the this topic specifically is kind of curious, uh, not curious, but really obscure. Um, Damien, the inventor of CouchDB at the time had his development environment on Windows. And I had my development environment on everything but Windows. Um, so I had to figure out how to get CouchDB going on, on my machines and Mac and Linux and other Unix systems. And uh, I emailed him, hey, here's my plan for porting this and supporting it. And he's like, yeah, give it a try. And I gave it a try. <laughs> and then I worked out and uh, kind of stuck around since then, wrote kind of the, like the how to build CouchDB for your Linux distribution read me that wasn't really a guide or documentation or the, the wiki entry and then started like hanging out with Damien online basically and learning more and more about CouchDB and helping write like the PHP library and example applications and uh, trying to attract spam bots to a forum that I wrote to show how scalable CouchDB is because all the spammers were using it it was quite fun um, <laughs> That's funny. Um, so in, in, in those really early days when you were first starting to like the community's growing and you're trying to like bring something to the community, what, what are the things from like, say, the PHP community that you wanted to be different or the same? And, and how, like, what did you want to imbue into the community as you were for sort of fostering it? This is just like as an example of how like that. Sorry, um, to go back, I've learned a lot of uh, terrific things from the PHP community. Like technically, some of the smartest people on this planet have taught me stuff that I like still help me in my day-to-day -day job some of the folks running facebook's inter facebook's infrastructure these days are uh have been like 10 15 years ago spend a lot of free time like teaching like a 17 year old kid from germany a lot of stuff about computers um which was really nice but there was also a distinct um culture and not not necessarily the php project itself although it also had a specific culture, but also the surrounding communities, especially the German PHP community. And just as an example for one of the things of how I think it's really, really terrible, you know how Perl scripts have the like the file ending .pl. Um, and on IRC, you can ban people based on their the domain they're connecting from. So we just banned all Polish people just because they look like Perl scripts <laughs> from our German IRC channel for no reason. So if you look at the German-Polish history, this is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Right? Oh, 
right? Well, it's fun because just a bunch of guys on IRC being funny, right? Oh, it's so cool. No PL people or like no, no postscripts here. Haha. <laughs> because like you had to like back then PHP was the new kid, kind of what you're seeing in Node.js these days. Kind of you have to pick a bunch of fights to prove yourself. Um, so Pearl was one of the fights that we picked early on. Um, but this complete lack of empathy for anyone uh, is is was like was throughout everything, including IRC etiquette and and uh, uh, the person who did the the bug triaging on the PHP issue tracker, like a um, like a retired Finnish army guy, um, with a very drill sergeant tone, being really nasty to a lot of people, but being very effective at like pruning a popular open source project bug list, but like like generally lack of empathy and um i've learned over the years that i'm very i'm a very emphatic person and there, i kind of want to wanted to avoid the the bad of this the being like excluding people based on their domain name for example or other silly things uh, that that I've, I've found over the past did so. you have a moment where you just like became a nicer person <laughs> or was it sort of just like over time you just matured um, that was on a couple of years later on in Twitter, maybe like maybe around twenty ten, when Twitter was starting to become really good at drive by snark, like like really like hurtful cynicism, uh, criticizing a lot of people. And at some point, I felt just like when I was doing that, I wasn't helping anyone. I wasn't adding to anything useful. Like other people would be snarkier than I, or faster at snark than I was. And there was there was no, so it wasn't worth doing. So I decided to just not just be nice on Twitter, just like not not be not nice on Twitter, and I've kind of adopted my whole uh, online persona. Or no, got got me started there. I have a really hard time picturing you being a not nice person. Oh, I I I can show you chat logs from fifteen years ago. I was a terrible person. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of like, what specifically were you doing around um, CouchDB to grow the users and contributors and spread the word? The a b- bunch of things were the thing that came to mind um, right when you asked the question. Um, I was very active on the users' mailing lists. So as um, typically open source projects back in the day had mailing lists where people could ask questions. And I knew these from other communities as well. And they were kind of hostile and some, there were like very strict rules about oh, is this the right question to ask or have has like the way you ask the question is not exactly answered in the frequently asked questions, but it's actually in there if you just know where to look. But that's the point for beginners. They don't know where to look. So uh, in other communities, I've seen them being like, well, I'll read the f- manual. And I didn't want that. I want to like, okay, somebody asked the same question for the 500th time. I'll answer, I would answer it and point to the documentation where to find it and explain the, like the thought process behind it so they can find it the next time and everyone who reads it understands like how it all fits together. So maybe they can point to stuff uh, later. And then, yeah, one of the revelation moments were when I was on vacation or was gone for a while, like in, in a week or so. And other people started replying in my voice, like in, in the same tone, in the same kind of emphatic um, yeah, voice, I guess. Um, and that's like, oh, I kind of created a culture here. That's kind of nice. Mm. Um, so that's that's one of the things. But then um, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be uh, relatively flexible with my life. And one of the challenges I set for myself, so I want to, because I all, again, I knew this from, um, from the PHP community, Germany had one of the first, uh, the first PHP conference, which I was at in back in two thousand and one or two, like really early on. Um, and I've since 
grown to learn the PHP conference life where a lot of people from all over the world come together and have a good time. And um, I wanted to be part of this and not having like to, to pay for it, <laughs> basically, because speakers will usually be invited and paid for everything. And so I wanted to become a speaker. So I asked a bunch of local user groups to give talks. And one of the talks I proposed was about CouchDB, the one that the new thing that I found that year. Um, and they said, that was really good. I blogged about it. They blogged about it. Then another user group in a different country asked me, hey, can you do this again, but in English? So I did that again. They paid for my, my, my train over there uh, to Switzerland. And then um, I asked them afterwards, oh, this was my first English speaking talk. Was this any good? Like, can I apply for this with conf like at conferences with? And I said, yeah, sure. Dude, like, this was better than a bunch of the talks that we've seen at other conferences. And I don't want to brag. I'm pretty sure my talk wasn't that good. Uh, but it was okay. And they gave me enough confidence to uh, apply at um, bigger conferences, uh, international ones. And in 2008, OSCON flew me over to Portland, I think. And that's where I met Michael, coincidentally, and gave my first uh, US CatchDB talk there. Um, and then, yeah, I just wouldn't shut up about CouchDB at conferences at my like where my other nerd friends would hang out. And eventually, every my uh, when you said it's kind of like when you introduced me, it's like my claim to fame for CouchDB is less like any of the technical contributions that I've done, which I've done a lot, but none of them are standing out really. But the um, the thing I'm I, I can credit myself was that everyone who knows CouchDB is either either I told them or they learned it from someone I told. And then there's kind of a couple of hundred people that read Damien's blog. But um, that is like, I, I just spend a lot of my personal time being the face and voice of CouchDB. And, and now you're, you're sort of one of the faces and voices of Hoodie, right? So you've, you've started this new project um, that's also going really well. We heard a little bit about it earlier. Um, similar to, to the previous question, what did you take from the CouchDB community and what did you want to do differently when you, when you started up Hoodie and you had kind of a greenfield uh, and you could really be like a, a founder and leader of that community? Oh yeah, greenfield is a really good word because I was really excited to like not have like I learned a lot through running like being part of the CouchDB community or help setting it up and uh, learned a lot about um, other open source projects as well. Like the, the more popular one gets, the more you learn about others as well. And especially if you're the database project, you get to speak with all the language communities, so you learn a lot from these as well. So if like you no, know, I understand how the Ruby people work and the Python people work and the PHP people work and so on. And that was kind of at the genesis of what's now the JavaScript community, which is also nice to know. So a lot of experience to draw from there. Um, the way I would explain it is like maybe I have to explain how Hoodie got started. Um, it, we had a project in Couch called Couch Apps, which was this idea of running full HTML web apps inside a database, which was a neat idea, but kind of a dead end. But we thought we'd revolutionize web development with it. And uh, one of the problems with it were that we only ever implemented 20% of the vision. And then um, one year at a conference, uh, Hoodie co-inventor Gregor Martinus uh, showed me an app that, hey, I built a couch app, but I was I noticed that you like there was 80% missing. I just filled that up with a bunch of like coffee script and Node.js. And I I think it works. Uh, want to check it out? And I checked it out and was like, oh my God, this is this is what we want. This is this is the thing. Um, but I realized that uh, very quickly that we have to break from CouchDB with uh, with its particular constraints to make this a like more mass appeal thing. So um, from the failure of couch apps and the not like web the web community not adopting it, we kind of rethought about how can we position a project that we want to be as ubiquitous as jQuery um, that is appealing to a lot a lot of people. Um, and that kind of informed the the whole rest of the project, basically, that we started thinking about community and contribution and ownership and funding uh, before we wrote any code or before we 
had any of the like technical demos that we had early on. That was great. So we're uh, we're getting ready for a break now. When we come back, Jan's going to talk a little bit about the relationship between healthy and popular open source projects. Hey everyone, Adam Stokowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. And if you're looking to hire the best freelance talent out there, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there the world's best developers and designers, white glove service, risk pretrial. That means that if you're not happy, you do not pay. You can hire a developer, you can hire a designer, you can hire both. If you need to scale your team, this is the place for you. To get started, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. They'll take great care of you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. Okay, we're back from the break. Uh, now I'm going to hand it over to Nadia uh, to get into some of the popular and healthy and sustainability topics that uh, she's so passionate about. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to have this be a little bit of an um, informal chat between us around some of the different topics that have come up around building healthy communities. Um, I think this is actually, I got this language from you, Michael, around um, popular versus healthy projects, um, or at least like the topic of like healthy open source. You had written a post about that. Um, mm. And so like one of the tensions that I see in um, building healthy communities is, well, what happens if a project is like, you know, being used by tons of people, but it's not healthy, whatever that definition is. Um, do they have any incentive to change? Should they just like, um, is it necessary that a project is healthy in order to, to thrive? Um, so maybe just starting by talking a little bit about um, like, what does it mean for a project to be popular versus healthy? Um, I'm curious whether we all have the same definition around it. For me, it's like a popular project is one that's being used by a ton of people um, or a ton of people depend on it. And a healthy project is one that is, um, I guess, just like has a lot of great processes and positive culture around like good governance um, people understand how to join how to contribute um, people feel valued for their contributions um, does anyone have like similar or different definitions i mean i think if you're looking for a metric you could probably define it as some kind of ratio between the number of people contributing to it in some meaningful way and and the number of people using it and if that gets too off balance and there's a lot of people depending on it and nobody working on it it, it gets pretty problematic i think you know hoodie has a, an amazing number of people engaged in it um and i mean people are definitely using it but i think it probably has the, the highest ratio of contributors to users that i know of. at this point yeah 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 and i think like you know like what I'm curious what you've done there. I mean, you're you're converting users into contributors, um, into meaningful contributors at a, an astonishing rate. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts about that and what you've done. It's actually um, probably not actually um, converting users into contributors, but recruiting contributors specifically, and then uh, targeting first-time contributors or people who haven't coded, like haven't been a lot, of, haven't been doing a lot of programming in the past, or haven't programmed in an open source context before. So we're more targeting those, and at this point, we're kind of trying to convert them into users. But that's probably not the usual flow. Um, just as a bit of background, hoodie is kind of close to one zero and has been for a while. <laughs> um, so. Um, the the last major rewrite coincided with a complete restructuring of the project to make it more accessible for new contributors because we realized well we could 
build that 1.0 that we've all dreamed of, but it's going to take us three years. And we'd rather have more people working on this and get there faster. And so we spent the first of these years uh, basically turning the project upside down and chopping it up into a lot of small pieces so that they're easier to understand if someone finds an issue they want to solve, solve for us that we may have prepared. They don't have to learn the whole architecture of Hoodie and all the little details, but only that one sub-project where that issue is filed and everything that's beneath that. Um, so that's like one of the first things that we did, the kind of like um, hyper-modularity of the project itself and um and started documenting it. Kind of, we have a policy on GitHub. Every directory needs, or every every yeah, every subdirectory needs a README. So you kind of explain this is the test directory. This is this is what we use for testing libraries. Here's an example of how to do a test. And then the source and other subdirectories explain how the particular components of the software work that are little um, little more in depth than the top level README of the file. And so making it approachable for people to get in as well. And then the third thing we've done is uh, specifically curating um, beginner issues, going out of a way to explain from, like, a lot of open source projects on GitHub are like you, making use of the fact that a lot of open source developers understand how GitHub works, but a lot of people don't. Even if they're programmers, they're just not used to the pull request review kind of um, process. And um, maybe they have a hard time about... Um, uh, po po posting something online for others to review. This is a, can be a very scary proposition for a lot of people. So um, we we make beginner issues that explain how to make a pull request as part of the issue that is linked into a, like a common documentation um, from from other nice people in the community, um, and then like make step by step guides for just how to fix a typo on the website. <laughs> and my while that might sound like a bit of overkill, if you do that a bunch of times with enough people, there's more work that you get done through other people than doing all that work yourself. Um, so this is kind of our way of like scaling ourselves to get more contributors in. Yeah, th there's a lot of similar themes here that we've done in the reforms to the Node.js project as well. I mean, it, it, and if you just look at from a number standpoint, right, there's not a lot of new full-time open source contributors that are coming in, into yeah. open source, but there's an insane amount of new people coming in to be casual contributors and, and part-time contributors. Um, and so, you know, these are people that tend to be, you know, on the more beginner end of the scale, maybe like need a little bit more help. Um, and there's a lot, like all of these little barriers to entry, both like cultural and technical are, are a really big deal to get them past. Um, but if you target those people, that's how you see a lot of contributor growth. And, and as they level up, they you retain them in the project and then they become the people that you know mentor the new people. And if you have this spectrum of contributors, it's not on the really engaged people to help out all of the newcomers. It's all of the former newcomers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm really curious about this for both of you. Um, so people talk about the contributor funnel, which is sort of like, how do you get someone who like fix a typo on the website to become like, you know, a dedicated member of the team? Um, and I think there's a lot of, I don't really fully understand. And I, and I think there's a lot of confusion around like, are drive by contribute contributions valuable? Um, how do you turn someone who's like makes casual contributions into a more regular contributor? Um, should you even do that at all? Um, so I'm curious for, for both of you and your experiences, um, what that what that funnel looks like, and is it okay if some people just hang out in different stages of the funnel? Well, I, I think that there's two ways to approach this, and one of them will surely fail, uh, and that is like I'm a full time contributor to this project. I've I've been maintaining it for a while. How do I make more people like me, and how do I get right. people to where <laughs> I am? Like that never works uh, ever. <laughs> 
right? It never has worked. Um, yeah. what, like what you have to do is you have to say, oh, there's all these people that I need to be contributors. How do I meet them where they are and, and mm. sort of bring them into the project? Um, and in terms of retention, I think that you do have to be okay with some of these people not sticking around, but you know, enough of them will. Um, and, and those people sticking around will encourage other people to stick around. So do you think it's like not really realistic, I guess, or possible? It's like I'll hear some interns talk about mentoring, you know, like one person to bring them on and like get them to be this like serious contributor um, to the project and, you know, bring them on the, the core team. Um, and I've heard some frustrations in that when that doesn't work out because you're, you know, devoting all of your energy into like one person who might not love the project as much as you do. Um, and so is it like realistic to ever expect anyone to do it like how does how does anyone join the team then is it just sort of like over time some of them will but you don't optimize for that there's this this joke about like this the cfo asking the ceo of uh what happens if we invest in our people and then they leave and then the ceo replies is what if we don't and they stay so i think <laughs> investing in people is always worth it um we have very very tangible examples of this. We have people who have been early, uh, got like a, basically switched careers into programming, found Hoodie as their first community. We taught them a lot of programming, a lot of Hoodie, and they have since moved on. Um, and they talk about their journey and they had, they do other things now. But every time they give a conference talk now, like I started out with the Hoodie people. Like every time, like and this person gives a lot of talks. <laughs> so every time they're on stage, we get a, uh, we get an honorable mention, and and yeah, we're we're, we're part part of this. Um, like we're getting basically free PR for this, um, mm. and and particularly they they're relating their experience, and other people also wanting having the, that experience, and also come to it. He's like, hey, you did really think really nice things for that person. Can like, how can I be part of this? Um, and that's always, always worth it, even though sometimes that just doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, and it's just something that you have to be okay with. I think mentorship is a really loaded word too. Like, uh, like we're we're all very pro mentorship, but I think that there's there's kind of two ways to do that. One is to have mentorship be kind of a core value. Like you're you're always trying to help people kind of level up. Um, but oftentimes I see that you know a, a group of people that maintain a project have a process that they like that works for them, but isn't working for new people. And so mentorship yeah. is like I sit down with somebody and get them over all these barriers to entry once, and then they need to stick around. And that's that doesn't work, and and it doesn't scale very well right mm -hmm. like all of these things that the young just talked about like you know documenting all of this stuff like that does not help people that already know it it helps people that don't know it <laughs> but yeah. you, you have to prioritize that right yeah and yeah like the the like there was a radical transformation for hoodie itself as well for the project like adopting these things and like you said meeting people where they are as opposed to getting them to where we are mm -hmm. I, I'm 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 also interested. You mentioned that you broke things up into a lot of smaller components, and that that really helped. And we we did this in Node.js too, where we, we you know like the website repository is where a lot of people get their feet wet, and it's yeah. it's so it's so so different from contributing to core. But we actually see a fair amount of people move from that to core, even though it's a totally different skill set. And it's they get they get through the cultural barriers, right? Like they right. get comfortable with the project, and then they just learn the new technical skills, which is really cool. Yeah, that's exactly my like my my history with PHP. I was doing English to German documentation translation. Then I filled out missing bits in the English translation. Then I built features that weren't documented. Like like they got like started building features and documented them, and and like got further and further in uh, because I got a I got a hook of very on the very outskirts of the project. And I think that's that's just how it works. 
What, what are some of those repositories that, that you see a lot of that uh, happening in now in Hoodie and, and in oh. any other projects that you're involved in? We have a dedicated editorial project uh, for Hoodie, like an, a separate repository. We, are, we put out a job ad for an editorial team that would take care of our like, blog and Twitter and have a like schedule posts and collaborate on reviewing things and have an interview series and like lots of stuff that, that you can do on the blog for like, really useful community building stuff. And we found a bunch of people who were excited about doing this. So we have a bunch of writers and like a librarian working on Hoodie. And how cool is that? <laughs> That's like cool. ner nerds from other areas that aren't necessarily tech <laughs> working on hoodies. It's very, very cool. Um, and we kind of want to uh, kind of modeled after Node.js, but it um, like branch out into other areas of like education, design, like have dedicated teams that have their own culture of dealing with things. And then, then the code team is just another another part of the project as opposed to how it's usually there's the code team is the project and everyone else is kind of scattered around it. Um, mm. And then for Couch, we we started experiment with a marketing uh, team uh, a couple of years ago, and that was a huge success as well. It's kind of it's very similar obligatory um, obligations as what the hoodie editorial team does, but actually it does also do like proper marketing, um, speaking with um, like industry analysts doing like phone calls with like that kind of stuff Whoa. because because Couch should be placed in that area, and the Apache Software Foundation behind it it has support for this as well. But there's like this is like really like dedicated stuff that has nothing to do with code where people are trying to push couch to be forward in, in ways that are really unusual for open source projects. Mm. Uh, I can only recommend this. You get to meet a lot of fun people very, being very passionate about stuff. I'm wondering about um, playing devil's advocate in a couple of different situations. Do you think that having tons of casual contributors or drive by contributors or whatever, um, if you had just like all that, um, and people weren't really like sticking around to become like regular long-time contributors. Would you call that project healthy if stuff got done? It's it's tricky to say. Um, we we definitely like the when we, when we mentioned the funnel, Hoodie definitely suffers from like we have a lot of first-time contributor issues, mm -hmm. but we don't have second-timer issues or no third right. times. We do, we don't have a very well-defined document like documented funnel for people to follow. It's something that we definitely want to work on. We haven't gotten around to yet just yet. Uh, but this is this is definitely like another area of work that we're going to go towards. And um, I don't want to nail people like on a metric for being healthy or unhealthy. Every open source project has its own kind of like depending on the scope and what it wants to do at some point, maybe it's done and needs to switch into maintenance mode. So it actually doesn't need a very, another healthy community by, by the metrics of another project. So I am especially don't want to like uh, other people running their own like successful open source projects. Uh, that are completely contrary to anything that we've been talking about. And they're still like nice projects and nice people. And like, I don't want to say these are wrong because they, they have, they use the wrong metrics or something like that. So I just want to be careful about like, not, not saying this is the only way. I'll, I'll be a little bit more aggressive about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I do think that like, you know, if people are showing up and want to contribute in any way and, and you're, you're not accepting those or you don't have a policy to accept them or you don't have no people or whatever like that, that is going to burn out your community at some point in time. Like, and, and things are going to start to shift like kind of negatively towards the project. Um, I, 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 I do agree that I wouldn't hold to any particular metric because there are a few projects that I can think of that are, you know, have a ton of casual contributors coming in, have a single maintainer who's really nice that really encourages this stuff and is fine with the maintenance burden of actually doing all of that stuff, right? I got like Lodash is probably a good example of this, right? Where JDD is just on top of every issue that comes in. Um, and also and, it's being paid to do this, which is like one of the, maybe one of the angles of how, like, why can some people afford this and not that? 
question. He was, he was doing it before he was paid to do it, right? And and also and also, I mean, I think his job pays him to do other stuff as well. It's not his his only job. Um, and and but he's also not complaining about drive-by contributors. He's not complaining right. about the maintenance overhead. Like if you're going to complain about the maintenance overhead of casual contributors, then you need to do a better job at creating new maintainers. <laughs> like you don't mm-hmm. you don't get to you don't get that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It makes me wonder, like, why does this stuff matter to projects? Is it, I mean, because, yeah, and you're sort of being careful to say, you know, like, not every project is like this and that's okay. Um, do you feel like you, at the same time, I guess I, I, I see Hoodie as like, wow, this is a really strong example of why this stuff matters. Um, but does it not matter in certain situations? Like, if you have a project that's, I've talked to a couple recently that were like this, where it's like, they have a BDFL and the project is really heavily used. Um, there's like a company that sponsors the development or it's like perfectly sustainable. No one is stressed about maintenance, but they don't see like what incentive do they have to actually involve the community on a more on a, on a deeper level. It's probably based on what they want to achieve. And if they, if, if they achieve all they want, that's kind of great, but they're kind of close to other ideas in the project. And uh, like one of the success stories at Hoodie is turning someone who literally just fixed a typo on the website and then became basically our accessibility person to make sure that all our website and the example projects are accessible by default. Um, those since moved on to other things in the project, but just like has, has brought in a perspective into the project that I've mentioned empathy before. Accessibility is obviously one of the topics that are really, really important in that area, but the, the, like the core group of people at Hoodie, like we, we thought that was important, but that was, we do this later because we have other things that are more important. And that person thought, I know this is really important. We should do this now. So that's kind of part of the culture now. And if you if you don't have a project that it has a regular influx of more people with more diverse backgrounds, you're kind of missing out on these kind of new things where you where a project could be taken. Um, mm. And sometimes that's okay, but then you're that's also an opportunity missed, and I kind of don't like those. Mm. I would also say that you know if if the project usage is growing. Um, you need to grow the the contributors, right? And so, if you have enough money to continue hiring, um, then then that'll work out. But what I see really often is, you know, people get hired to maintain a project at a particular level of popularity, and when it doubles or triples, they don't have twice or three times as many contributors to handle all of the new demands on the project, right? Yeah. Um, like like there was a point in time where where joining employing Ryan Dahl was enough for Note. Like we didn't really need any other full time right. people, um, and that was fine. And but the project grew so much, like no company could keep up with, with yeah. hiring people to to stay on the project, and we really needed to find a way to bring more contributors in. Mm. Yeah, and uh, like definitely seen this sort as well. Like talking about about the challenges of this, uh, the the scaling is really important. One of the downsides of all of this that we're having is that people like hoodie a lot and like contributing a lot because we're acknowledging their their work and their contributions a lot, and they're thankful for all the work that they are doing. And then we're kind of guilt tripping them into contributing more, and then they can't, and then they feel bad, or they do and they burn out. And that's. That's like so. It's a real tangible project uh, problem that we're seeing, um, especially since Hoodie is kind of focusing on on uh, more diverse contributors. We kind of um, we welcome everyone, but we're kind of trying to really specifically reach out to underrepresented groups in open source specifically. And um, these people just have a harder time finding spare time to work on open source stuff. <laughs> and uh, if you make a really nice place for them, they really want to contribute. But if all they have is like a half hour every month, um, then either they 
they they they can't follow the the project chat, for example. That that's all they do, and have still miss stuff. So like you need we need to be able to, uh, on the one hand, kind of like chop things like tasks into small enough pieces that these people can contribute. On the on the other hand, you kind of have to make sure that they feel comfortable with that level of contribution being okay for them and not feeling bad about it or like going beyond their limits yeah. and, and burning out. Um, and this is something that we haven't we haven't solved yet. This is just an active ongoing problem. You do know quite a bit about that, though. I mean, you've you've been involved in JS U and really like did a lot of work to to make JS U one of the the most diverse conferences, really in the in the whole conference space uh, in terms of people attending and people speaking, but especially people speaking and getting um, that kind of stuff in. And I'm curious how you've adapted those learnings into like a a code project and a <laughs> conference, right? Um, oh yeah, interesting. Yeah, so we did the we did a cut of conduct very early on because before the contributor covenant was a big thing, and we kind of pioneered that for for Apache as well at CouchDB. Um, we started to recognize that open source is people coming together, and people coming together need guidelines, and that are very similar to those at events. And um, I think the way we got there is, and this uh, paraphrasing a good friend Florian uh, Gil here. Like uh, who's running a bunch of Ruby events here in Berlin or has in the past, and whenever you do an event, the most important question you could, as an organizer, ask is who's not here and why. And I was arguably the same, also very important for open source question, or the most important question for open source project: who's currently not contributing and why aren't they contributing, and what can we do to remove those the, those barriers to contribution? And if you just like make a make a habit and process of working on these things, you'll you'll get into a point to a point where you have a lot more people contributing that couldn't before. All right. We're about hitting our time for a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple other like challenges and edge cases around community building. Every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com weekly and subscribe. We're back from the break. We're here with Jan and my co-host, Michael. Um, one thing that I was wondering about from our last conversation was, uh, I mean, Hoodie is a great example of a project that baked in all these really, um, really great community values from the start. But what happens when you have a project that is older and maybe didn't do that in the beginning and is now having trouble with contributions? Um, so I know that Jan had written this post called Sustainable Open Source, um, referencing a couple of projects like Grunt um, that were making these public appeals for contributions. Um, and they're both very, you know, they were like popular projects, but they were saying, you know, we didn't do the community side very well. So how do you do that once it's almost, is it, is it too late <laughs> when you've got a project that's heavily used but has virtually zero contributions? This is, it's tricky um, since like uh, even inside Hoodie when we did our, like the, the big revamping of the project last, last year, uh, everybody was on, like most everybody was on board with what we were going to do, but um, it takes some, like communities have inertia and you have to overcome that. And the strong, like the, the older the community is, the more inertia it adds. And um, 
Whereas in, in hoodie setting up a code of conduct took about uh, like an hour and a half um, after like having produced a draft, like to agree that we should have that. Uh, and CouchDB took a couple of weeks to uh, like close to six months to actually have all of the con community agree on it. And we even had to um, sort of forcibly eject one community member who was violently, violently against the code of conduct, because as it turns out, they were regularly uh, um, showing behavior that would be in con conflict with the code of conduct. So um, that was kind of like that whole process is very long winded and, and very tough for a project, especially for someone who has or a project that has traditionally valued t tech contributions over everything else. And then uh, have a, have a very prolific contributor that needs to be ejected from the the project. You need to have procedures for that. You need to understand, have everyone understand what all the consequences are, and be be on board with this. So, like the arguably for Cash, this was kind of the worst case of what a project can go through. Um, I'm thankful for the experience, but I also don't ever want to do this again. So I don't envy projects that don't readily have. Uh, they have to convince the constituents to like, okay, code of conduct is a really important thing. And then you have a, like three months debate about this instead of like, okay, everybody's kind of like, yeah, thumbs up. This is a good idea. Um, so uh, I guess that that's my way of saying you need to talk to a lot of people, um, the bigger <laughs> community is, to understand their point of view and maybe bring them on to your point of view uh, if they differ, um, if, if, you have all, if you have at all the chance to get there. I think you're touching on on an interesting strategy, though, that I think does work, which is that, you know, these these processes and the status quo work for the people that are in power, that have power, right? Like they're already there. They've already made it through all these barriers to entry. You're, you're, you're basically changing it and making it somewhat less convenient sometimes for them in order to get new people that don't have power, that don't have a voice. Yeah, um, right. But but you and, and some of the other people from Hoodie, you, you had some success with this model that you could point to. It was a related community. You had credibility within the couch project um you and that kind of helped you do it and also you cared enough to stick around for six months and actually convince everybody which is also very yeah. hard right um and, and i think like you know when you look at other communities you, you can see something similar right like if you if, say if you wanted to change the way that python core worked you could look towards communities in the python community and that have leaders that have had success with this and use that as a model and then advocate it um and and those people care enough probably to stick around. I think when we reformed the Node.js project, uh, Rod Vegg had never really worked on core and now he's like the TSC chair. Um, but you know, at the time he'd never worked on core because it was just not that interesting in terms of the, the contribution policies around it. But he had done a bunch of pioneering work in the Node ecosystem around better contribution policies and in the level up community and stuff like that. And so a lot of what we did was adapt to those and we were able to play on the success of that model that we, that we already knew worked and it was coming from people that were, you know, respected within that community. Which, which I guess it's why it's so important that we talk about these things so people like understand that these things are important and, and talk about them and, and maybe steal from us as much as they want and then make up their own uh, rules of their own game or their own projects. How would you tell someone who is basically a single maintainer of a popular project? Like, how do you get from zero to one with that? <clears throat> Where they're sort of like, oh my gosh, I've been doing all this work and I really love this idea of a community model, but like, where do I begin? Yeah, you want me to do even more work? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, like what I've had some success with is, is first you crack open the process, right? So you say, look, it's not on you to design a process. Just you're talking about having a more open process. Why don't you use that process to create the process, right? Like, yeah. like here, like create an empty governance.md doc and then let people yeah. send pull requests to it and encourage people to send pull requests to it and, and have that conversation and get people engaged, right? That's what we did with the hoodie editorial team. We just said, here's an, like, we need an editorial team. Here's roughly the things that you need to be doing that we'd like you to do. Uh, if anyone is interesting, your first job is to figure out how to do what you want to do and write down how you want to do that. Like it's the the kind of the genesis of the project is the, the, it, its own governance. Um, That's a practice I really liked about Hoodie of um, you would like call out these specific types of contributions you were looking for and saying, maybe that's like where people start is saying like, hey, I, I'm looking for this type of thing um, and treating it almost like a job board. And then um, maybe maybe a like a little bit more tangible for that single maintainer person person that we kind of uh, dreamed up here. Um, the I can like spend ten hours to like fix ten bucks, or I can spend ten hours to write a failing test case and describe in an issue how that bug would be fixed. And then ten people can fix one bug, and I only have to review their work. And within one 10 hours i have 10 fixed bugs and then the next 10 bugs come and with the other one i have fixed 10 bugs and i have 10 more contributors that potentially can fix 10 more bugs so all of a sudden i'm a 10x programmer um <laughs> uh, it's a sorry for that very stupid joke um, but the um the the incentive is that there's a you're creating more versions of yourself and they're in a sense lesser because they maybe have less less understanding of the project and less vision of the project but then that's going to be your job like teach people the the innards of the project teach people the vision of the project so that they in turn can like internalize that and and continue your work so it's radically different from like okay I'll sit down for an hour and do this really because I I love like I love coding and I love like fixing stuff in the code and I can spend an hour and it's really enjoyable for me or I can sit down like and write documentation really but then if you do this a couple of times and then people bite and stick around it's kind of addicting too so you're kind of trying to optimize for getting more people this is how we got into the whole hoodie contributors thing um like like cloning ourselves um, to become more efficient as a, as individuals in those projects. Also, uh, like an interesting aspect of this too is that you 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 have to distribute the ownership over this stuff along with uh, asking people to contribute, right? Like at some point they need to to be a decision maker, have some authority over it. Um, and and if you have a big enough project where you can actually start breaking off components, um, you can distribute authority to those people really really early because. It, it's the you know a totally separate repository or something outside of the main project. Like the most successful version of this that I know of is is the the work that we did in IOJS uh, to build out the localization effort. And literally, we got 146 people in 27 languages in a day um, by by essentially we were like you know tell us in this thread if you want to start a localization community and I will create a repository and then add you to it. And then literally, I would log at the first issue and it says fill out the readme fill out the description get a twitter account it's all these things that like they own that they're doing that they're contributing and it's very clear that they own this space and then they would invite a ton of extra people and it just it blew up so fast it was amazing a couple of themes i feel like i'm hearing from all these different suggestions and it's like around like opening up your process and transparency and like making it easier just sort of like saying out loud what you're doing so that other people know what you're doing and makes yeah. it easier for people to get involved um and then also just that aspect of like yeah this isn't more work this is actually making this process more efficient and more distributed which means less work for you and i think like too often it's associated with like 
oh, I just want to like write code and I don't really want to do all other stuff. But it's, I think like rethinking of it as this is actually like you doing less work by making the one-time investment now that's like reusable across a lot of other things. And eventually it frees up, like if, if the hard stuff is like the hard programming challenges is what you really thrive on, it allows you to focus on ever more harder problems in your project yeah. because, because other people taking care of the, the lesser hard problems. Right, exactly. Yeah. The other like flip side of I was wondering about was um, some people I've talked to have had bad experiences when they've opened up their uh, process to other people or let other people in. Um, where, you know, like somebody ended up taking over and or making decisions they didn't agree with. Um, and so it's scary for them to think about, like, giving up control. Um, so curious, like, what your experience has been like around, um, you know, have you had bad experiences where you've handed off responsibilities to someone and they broke your trust in some way? Um, how do you learn how to just, like, be OK with that and, and take the risk? I don't think I've I've had a very bad example of this, but also both couch and hoodie. I'm very involved and there are no BDFLs in these projects, but mm. I carry a lot of influence um, that I can usually turn the bad things around before they happen. The problem is when when you really can't and like you're part of the side that doesn't want a, a particular change, but the majority of the people who can now make decisions do want it and um it is um, how this all works in couch is institutionalized by the apache software foundation and um it's done through voting people into specific circles and then they get a, a get more power to decide things and my measure of control at this point is like i can only, like i will only vote people into that higher circle of being able to make like binding decisions that may be decisions that i disagree with but the only people that i I trust that much that even though I disagree, I know they have the best of the project at heart and they won't ruin the project and they really think it's the best for the project and I'm wrong on this. <laughs> so I have to be okay with this. And uh, But that's a very, 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 very deep level of trust that can only be earned over years and years of collaboration. Um, so um, it's really hard to relinquish that. And I think that's part of the challenge that I still have to learn to go through to be able to do that. It's really easy to relinquish uh, control of things that are like I'm not saying they're not important, but there's like it's really hard to f documentation. Um, mm. Like like it's, it's of course easy to make bad documentation, but it's kind of like it's kind of straightforward how you would want to do this or what kind of type of language you want in there. And and there's other sub projects that are really hard to really screw up. Um, as, aside from the like okay how a really core feature works or whether a feature is going to be in a certain version of the project or things like that. And then uh, and at that point, it is down to probably a lot of a lot of discussion between people that are passionate about this, and um, they have to work it out. And whether there's a process for this or not doesn't really matter. Uh, they have to work it out as, between themselves. And sometimes it means some people leave the project. Sometimes it means people are grudgy for a bit, and that's fine. And and sometimes it means we have two projects now, <laughs> and then uh, maybe that's also good for the community, like we've seen with IOJS, for example. I think another good strategy too that calms people down is that you you quantify the risk of somebody doing something wrong, right? So, um, like, what is the cost of a mistake in the documentation? It gets yeah. fixed pretty quickly. It's up there for a few minutes. It's not a big deal. Um, so, if you can break that off into its own repository and relinquish control, great. You know, same thing stuff with stuff like the website. Um, and then in the core project, I, I think we even do this around the the master branch a little bit. Well, one like Git allows you to 
you know, fix any mistake. So if you're not yeah. on subversion, you're not like in this horrible situation where, <laughs> oh my God, everything is like, I have to redo everything. Um, but you know, even like commits that go into master don't automatically land in a release. Like they, they actually, you know, get, there's another review process where they land in different branches based on, you know, how much they might break things or what the risk profile is. And so, um, and there are people that just engage in that and they, they have, they, they know that the, the basic stuff is already done with the review. They're really just looking at, you know, can this land in LTS or is this something that only lands in like the new release line? Um, and that really allows us to liberalize the, the control around master and, and have much, many more people, you know, contributing and committing and reviewing in master. But then, then it's like this. This means the, and when we talked about the funnel, kind of the 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 funnel doesn't end with you know contributor. There's also like the from the user first timer contributor and then new contributor. There's also the maintainer type. That's what you like. That's what you kind of want people to upgrade to eventually. And Node definitely has a lot more people in there than Hoodie has, for example. So, um, that that's again like if you want to be in a position where you can afford to have uh, that kind of infrastructure where it is easy to relinquish control, you also have to work on having more contributors really badly because mm. they can only do that if you have a lot of people. So it's kind of, this This is all kind of like self-evident coming around to you should focus on getting contributors more than anything else in a project because anything, anything bad that can come from it, so you get to solve with more contributors. Right, right. Like, what are the things that you need to have happen? And if they're that important, people should show up to do them as long as you make it easy enough for them to do. Right. Like, I think that there was a lot of worry that like, well, who's going to, you know, sit and review all of these LTS patches and port them over? Well, like IBM really cares about long term stability for their customers. So like, it turns out that they will hire people to do that as long as we make it easy for them to do that. Yeah, I think what, what you can't do is you can't say, we have project goals, and then we're going to make the community care about them, right? Like, you have to optimize for people to show up and do what they care about. Um, yeah. You know, this, this is why we don't really have a roadmap for Node.js. Like, we have some kind of basic stuff that we know that we want to do in the future, but it's really like, what you show up with is what goes in. Um, and, and the more that we try to define what, what the next release is going to look like, the more that we kind of de-incentivize people to show up with working code and, and ideas. So. Yeah, that, that's what killed the original PHP 6, which was meant to be the Unicode release. And then that, that because the project decided the next goal is Unicode, turns out only two people cared about Unicode and everyone else was agreeing with Unicode, but didn't care about that. So, <coughs> sorry, that didn't go anywhere, which was next eventually. And then we got a different PHP 6 now that has, uh, I don't know where that actually stands with Unicode support, but that that's, was one of the examples of like the project sets a goal and like try to get people behind this, which like you said, it doesn't work. <laughs> you need to get around to like, like, like what you just said, you need to get around what people want instead of getting them around to what you want. That's tough. Um, kind of curious just to zoom out and talk about what we think success looks like for an open source community and project. Um, I know we sort of talked a little bit about metrics and, and how, you know, those can be sort of, you don't want to hold everyone to the same standard or not, but like beyond just sort of a basic gut feel, like how does somebody know if they're doing community right or not if that's even a thing are people happy <laughs> yeah yeah i was i was gonna go there as well as like if you if you throw a party you kind of know when it's a good party and when it's not a good party it's, it's really <laughs> the same thing how do people feel how do you see people strive doing their thing do you see people like uh reaching the goals they said they want to road uh, want to reach in the time that they said they want to reach it right or can they do they flourish and get do you, yeah, is it do people have a good time that's, that's probably it. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I think looking at the party is probably a really good metric, right? Like, yeah, I, I, I like think, that. Yeah, I mean, like, like the JavaScript conferences, everybody's like super happy and having a great time and doing karaoke. And then some of these conferences that I go to that I won't name, you know, it's just people getting drunk in an airport lock <laughs> or something or like, <laughs> or like some hotel ballroom, just surly. Like. <laughs> well, what if, you, I mean, if someone doesn't care whether other people are happy and they sort of just care about, I mean, in more of like a BDF type situation is it just like does that just kind of suck for everybody else who loves that project but can't be involved i don't think a benevolent dictator that that benevolence isn't shown through understanding that people work best when they're happy is not benevolent so they're not a bdfl by definition there's a dfl <laughs> there's a lot of dfls out there <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In my opinion, the BDFL model has kind of run its course. I think that the, the demographics of, of contributors have changed enough that that's just not a sustainable model for the most yeah. part. And the, the, few, the few times it really worked, it's the, the, the people who stepped up to be the BDFL are really exceptional people. And we kind of can't optimize a culture of open source for exceptional people because they are the exception. To kind of flip it on the other side, like we've talked a lot about what maintainers of projects can do to... Um, build healthy communities but if you're part of a community and how can you help advocate for yourself and for others back to the maintainers point them to this podcast <laughs> rfc.fm right <laughs> i think uh it's we're coming back to the same with events people need to feel safe to affect change um so maybe if you and if you don't feel safe at the project try to get that going and if you can't get that going find another project and yeah. i think that kind of the baseline for this is a code of conduct for a project that defines what that safe space looks like and what happens if that that safeness is violated um but there's a lot more that comes to it that, that makes people feel safer to at an event and or or a, an open source project but that's kind of the baseline that you need and then people feel comfortable it's like hey i'm not sure if everyone agrees with this but i'm feeling really strongly about this um, and then the discussion is going it's like then then you're off to the races and can see if you actually have a chance of changing the community in the ways that you're interested in or if if you're shut down or if that your idea gets evolved from something that's even better than what you ever could imagine, which is usually what happens because that's the beauty of human collaboration. Um, but um, yeah, get get the ball rolling on feeling safe. And once you're there, just like try test balloon. I mean, I think some projects just aren't going to change until they hit a point of crisis. And so yeah. you don't necessarily need to feel bad about leaving or even leaving publicly like that. That, you know, is a good example. And when they do hit a crisis point like that, will give them a reason to change and, and some context. Like um, and it, to some extent, like there are a lot of projects out there that are nice that you can spend your time on. Like, Don't burn out trying to, to change a project when there's so many good ones out there. And eventually, if enough people do that, like the, the project will hit a crisis point and they will kind of be forced to change the way that they do things all right i think that's a that's a really good spot to end it on that's a great little note um yeah yeah so uh, you can head over to rfc.fm for more shows and to subscribe thanks Jan, for coming by thank you for inviting me and if you ever want me back um i'll, I'll definitely be a guest again and i'm looking forward to the next episodes yeah well we'll think of another topic to to nerd out on real deep and, and definitely pull you back many in. more <laughs> yeah yeah all right Bye, everyone. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye.